This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, AOPA has a new event strategy for 2023. And an electric helicopter takes off. Also, we're pushing back against a new air tour plan over national parks. And the We All Fly exhibit opens at the Smithsonian. Finally, the FAA is giving us a little more data about those Piper wing spar ADs. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, turn right, turn right. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. You'll probably notice that Ian and I are both uh, working remotely today. Yeah, so bear with us. We're both on the road. I was just saying David's, you know, David's actually working. I'm messing around. I'm on vacation. But anyway, so David, our guest this week, Josh Flowers, uh, a name that I would assume most listeners already know. They probably already follow all his antics. Uh, well, I don't want to say antics. That's a bad thing, right? They, they follow his adventures. Tips and um, techniques. On, yes, on YouTube. And you got a chance to meet with him and speak to him out on our ramp. We did. Um, I got a chance to meet with Josh Flowers and Chelsea Smith. They came to AOPA in Frederick a couple of weeks ago. Julie Walker handled the interview. We appreciate her doing that. Sierra Harrop provided the video. It was a great time. I really enjoyed meeting Josh and Chelsea. They've got a lot to say, Ian, and their hearts are really in it. So I think it's going to be a great little interview. Cool. All right. So we'll get to that in a few minutes. But first, we want to talk a little bit about the news. And we're going to go kind of fast here today because there's really no real groundbreaking sort of big, big news, but a lot of little stuff going on that we think is really interesting. The first is just almost an announcement, really, that uh, AOPA next year will be altering its event strategy a little bit. And we think you're going to like it. Basically, we're going to increase our presence at events that are already being held. So for example, air shows, you know, the big air shows, which we're already at, and some of the smaller regional air shows as well. Yeah, that's that's a good point, Ian. And, you know, one of the first ones out of the calendar from 2023, it used to be called the Copper State Fly-In over in Arizona. It's now called the Buckeye Fly-In because it's at Buckeye Municipal Airport. So it kind of makes sense. Yep. And that's going to be in you know, February 17th to the 19th in Arizona. So that typically usually kicks off the, the fly-in season, the air show season. And so what we're trying to do, as you explained a minute ago, is that we're, we're partnering up with folks who already have some of the infrastructure in place. Yeah. Some of the tents, you know, the food trucks, things like that. Because uh, we're not specialists in that department, although we've done 
quite well since I 2014, say. I yeah. believe, when we took the regional uh, fly-ins on the road. So that's going to be new and different. And we're going to have a lot more to say about that. There's going to be more regional, local events that our members can meet us at. And we will still bring that programming that we bring to all these. Well, yeah, generally, the seminars that I know are really popular. Exactly. The workshops, the seminars. Mark Baker will be there. Usually um, has a little town hall presence. So we, we let people know what we're doing on the advocacy front. And you get to meet the editors sometimes and, you know, the photo photo geeks like myself and that kind of thing. And uh, hopefully, Ian, we'll see you at one or two. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. So like you said, first one, that's the only one we're ready to announce as of now, but others are in the works. And that'll be at the Buckeye Air Fair in February 17th through 19th. These are, there's lots of these sort of bigger regional, I mean, this one they say 30,000 people go to, which is fantastic. There are lots of these around the country. Northwest, you know, think about the Northwest flying up there in, uh, in Washington. They've got the Alaska Airmen. Copper State's always a big one. So lots of these regional ones, people might not necessarily know about if they don't live in the area. But of course, our fly-ins have largely been regional. And so I think just think this is a win-win, right? It's good for uh, those established events and, and good for AOPA. I think so too. I look forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think honestly, we're going to get to meet more people. Yeah, I agree. All right, David. So uh, electric flight, we'd love to talk about this. We're usually talking about it with eVTOLs or airplanes. But one thing that we haven't chatted about a whole lot because there hasn't been a lot of development is electric helicopter flight. And of course, one reason there hasn't been a ton of development is it takes a lot of power, right, to, to hover and hover taxi and all that sort of things with helicopters. But tier one engineering out of California has done it. They've flown an R44 cross country. They did. They did. Well, uh, let's let's qualify that cross country because I looked it up on uh, on ForeFlight and, yeah. um, and and this is still a big deal. An R44 out of Jacqueline Cochran Regional Airport in Palm Springs and went to Palm Springs International uh, last week. And so and also courtesy to AvWeb because uh, they posted the story, but that's about 20 miles. Um, but listen, it's with a battery-powered R44. So I say kudos to them for giving that a whirl. Yeah, I, I think it's an incredible achievement. I would love to see more of this. Helicopters, like we, we know, they take a ton of power in terms of power to weight. So uh, electric would be a good way to go. And I think there's... You know, you sometimes think, well, why not eVTOL that are going to be purpose-built for this? But there's room for everybody, right? I think you're going to have electrically powered aircraft. You're going to have hybrid aircraft. You're going to have eVTOL. You're going to have electrically powered helicopters. There's going to be, they're going to find different missions for all these, really. Yeah, and a lot of, a lot of different technology in between. This actually gets that eVTOL concept a little bit more off the ground, <laughs> pun intended, like we said. But you know, the, uh, R44 is, is something that I'm familiar with and you're familiar with. And I think the general public might have an easier time with this than getting into something like a very large, you know, drone, drone. looking device. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and in this case, I think the technology is really interesting, Ian, because the story says that the tier one is able to hot swap the bat. Well, I don't, I don't want to say hot swap, swap the batteries in about 15 minutes. Oh, so cool. that lowers, you know, it lowers the, the time. It, may, it speeds things up. I think that's probably a pretty good idea. I do have some questions, though, about this. Yes, there are lots of questions. That swap, that's interesting. That reminds me of Pipistrel when they first came out. 
with the electro, their their plan originally was to have a sort of a swap system. I think they've gone to more of a traditional plug-in, but uh, that is pretty interesting. Yeah, one of the things that I have a question about with the whole eVTOL you know concept is that, and I saw this firsthand the other day, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in a few minutes, but. The traffic from Washington, D.C. getting back to Frederick, Maryland was pretty thick. We had a little visit to the Smithsonian, and I was just thinking, I mean, how many eVTOLs would you need flying, say, parallel but over the interstate to alleviate some of that traffic? I mean, I looked left, I looked right. It was literally thousands of cars. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to have hundreds of four-person eVTOLs. No. I don't think all you know shuttling back and forth into in a giant you know conga line. So I'm just wondering about this. Yeah, I mean, you're talking. Who knows how long? It, it really does seem like, at least for the foreseeable future, you're talking about a sort of a. Well, probably the same customers who fly helicopters now, right? Relatively wealthy. They maybe they have a second house somewhere. They're trying to catch a flight or they're, you know, going on vacation or whatever the case may be. But yeah, I think you're probably right that it's not going to be widely accessible for a really long time. And even if it is, what do you, yeah, what are you going to do? I mean, is it going to be the Jetsons where it's like lanes and everything else? It's a, it's it's a little that's still sci-fi. And how much would it cost? The price yes. for that? I mean, I'd pay I'd pay 20 bucks to go down I270 from where where I live in Frederick to Washington yeah. DC cuz it costs $20 to park in Washington DC. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. I don't know that I would pay 120 $20 for it, you yeah. know, and so I think there's a, a cost value delta that we're going to have to uh, factor in to this mm -hmm. desire to move forward electron, you know, electrically. Yeah, I agree. You know, one thing about eVTOL is noise. And of course, one place where noise is a concern is the national parks. The National Park Service has put together a bunch of air tour plans around the country for these busier national parks. And AOPA has always been involved in the rulemaking portion of this because Obviously, our members fly over these parks and our members do air tours in these parks. And so National Park Service now is putting forth a plan that AOPA is really not happy with. And we're pushing back on it. Yeah. And the reason why we're pushing back on it, in essence, is the fact that they've moved ahead with a plan without much input from yeah. the traditional folks that are specialists, you know, with uh, general aviation and with av advocacy like ourselves, like AOPA. Mm -hmm. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes, you know, with our folks in Washington, D.C. But the thing is, there's some procedures that were drafted without involving a lot of subject matter expertise. And that could lead to some restrictions in uh, aviation over parks, not just fixed wing, but rotorcraft as well. And one thing that I was thinking about, um, you and I were chatting a little bit before the show, you know, flying over a park like the Grand Canyon, which I've done in a helicopter with my wife and daughter, it was the greatest way to get into the canyon, by the way. Yes. Uh, just yeah. a tremendous experience. But folks who might be physically challenged, Ian, now really don't have a way to see the beauty and the splendor of what our national parks have to offer if they can't overfly it. And and that, that I think that's really being short-sighted, to be honest with you. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, AOPA had made that point in, in its comments saying, hey, first of all, you have to include all users, which I think is a, a key. Let me talk about that for a second. That, that's a key point because the parks are for, they're for all of us. 
And that includes people who, you know, there's been a lot of pushback against the snowmobilers out West um, for a number of years. That's a good point. And also dirt bike, dirt bike riders, but that's mainly in Bureau of, you know, BLM lands. Yeah, that's right. Similarly. Yep. So that's been a big issue. And of course, lots of people, they think, oh, it's just noise, right? With airplanes and, but they don't appreciate the fact that there's, I mean, aviation is a viable and, and really good way to see a lot of these parks. And like you said, for, if you're disabled, elderly, whatever, it's not just, you know, joy riding for people necessarily. And if you've been to a park recently, you know, I mean, they can be overrun with traffic. Totally. This Great Smoky Mountains National Park is the most heavily trafficked and, you know, park in, in the United States, in my opinion, surprisingly so. But um, but that's really interesting. You would think like the Grand Canyon would have more mm-hmm. or Yellowstone or even the Grand Tetons, but no. And that's the thing. How can you enjoy it that much if you're stuck in traffic in a car, yeah. you know, and, and the sweeping vistas, the, the beauty, the it's just it's a whole different ballgame from the air. It really sends chills up your spine. So if, if our listeners haven't done something like this, I would recommend that they take a look at it first, to be honest with you. Yep. So I guess just to, to wrap that up, I mean, AOPA is pushing back saying, hey, look, we need to be involved. We're a legitimate user of these parks. Air tours are a legitimate visitation method to these parks. And so you need to involve all the users. It brings in local money to the economy, mm-hmm. you know, and it represents the lowest impact on parks when you think about it. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I think let's get back on track with that one and listen to the experts. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And we'll be right back. Okay, David, hey, I want to geek out a little bit now on the Smithsonian's. So the da- the museum downtown, we call it, you know, the downtown museum, right? That's been there since, uh, what, when did it originally open? The 70s, I think, was it? You know, I wrote a story on that. It was, I'm, I'm going to go by memory here, but I did write a story yeah. about that. I want to say it was during Gerald Ford's administration. Okay, all right. And I think that in the 70s, uh, largely unchanged. Yeah. yeah, largely unchanged from that. Of course, they've opened Odorahazi out in at Dulles, but the museum has been closed, g- undergoing major renovations. We've talked about that in the magazine, and now at least one of the galleries is open, and you guys got to visit. Yeah, you know, a lot of the Smithsonian, the the big the big shop, the, the one in downtown Washington D.C., it closed in 2018, and um, that was really a planned update for the Smithsonian. Which Ian, like we said a minute ago. Almost from the moment it opened, it was the most popular museum in Washington, D.C. So the, the big news to us as GA pilots is the, the We All Fly wing of the museum. And so the We All Fly area, you first thing you do, it's just so awesome. You see Sean D. Tucker's article, you know, upside down on the ceiling there. And it was, it's spectacular. Um, we wrote a little story about the fact that he donated the aircraft to the museum. And it's a great way to enter. It's something that it sends shivers up your spine if you're a GA person. If you know Sean D. Tucker, your hats are off to him. He's a great guy, a great advocate for GA. But that's not the only interesting aircraft there. Uh, Dorothy, she's our, um, basically the uh, museum. The museum liaison that we deal with all the time. She helps put a lot of the artifacts together. Uh, we did have a, a, a nice one-on-one with Dorothy, and she was great. She explained 
all the aspects of how they came and to put the We All Fly exhibit together. And Ian, listen, I didn't tell you about this, but there's a there's an interactive part of that exhibit. Um, Kayla McLeod Hunt got to, I guess, sort of try her hand at, at hang gliding through a valley. Oh, cool. And, and it's really interesting. You put your hands out in front of you and you hold on to, to the control uh, yoke and, and you sort of fly over the valley. Cool. So there's that kind of interactive aspect for visitors. I think that's really important. Yeah. i tell you what was a really cool surprise for us. You know, AAPA worked uh, pretty closely with the Smithsonian. And Julie Walker and, and uh, Chris Rose had gone to, to Africa together, which we've published a few stories about that. And there are many photos that AOPA contributed to this exhibit, including Julie and Chris's trip to Africa, which shows how GA, highlights how GA helps people around the world. You know, just gives you a, a nice, you know, handle on the importance of GA to other folks, sometimes in third world countries, they're bringing in medical supplies, things like that. And um, I think that was a real interesting highlight as well. Yeah. So the gallery's open as of now, right? Publicly, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And Absolutely. Open to, open to mid-October, just really as we record this, uh, uh, basically about a, a week and a half, two weeks ago. Okay. And I guess they're still renovating other parts of the museum and it's not expected to be totally completed until 2025. So I guess a lot of it was kind of walled off. Some of it was walled off. You know, the, the main exhibit hall, is, you, when you walk in, there are exhibits uh, that, that, that greet your senses right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the main atrium area does have, you know, uh, parts of a DC-3. It's got a piece of a 747. Uh, and it's got a lot of, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of iron out there already. Yeah. And uh, Patty Wagstaff's Extra 300, you see that overhead cool. um, in the area that's uh, the Nation of Speed area. And if you look high overhead, and Star Wars fans will appreciate this, you can see an X-Wing from the Star Wars. Oh, wow. Uh, the Rise of Skywalker. That's awesome. Yeah. It's really neat. It's hanging from the ceiling. And it's like, you know, it's, it's interesting. The patina on the on the um, rocket engine cowls, are, it's just it's the, the attention to detail is phenomenal. So it's just really neat, especially for, for movie geeks and aviation geeks. Uh, we're just... I would just, we were over the moon. It was a great time. Awesome. Very cool. So definitely worth checking out. All right, David. So last bit of news that we want to cover this week is the Piper Wing Spar, the PA-28 and PA-32 Wing Spar AD. We've talked a lot about that in the past. This resulted from the crash. I think it was with a commercial applicant, commercial pilot applicant and DPE, unfortunate crash at, at Embry-Riddle. They put out this AD requiring spar inspections and the FAA has published now the results of a lot of these inspections throughout the fleet with this SAIB that just came out. And, and some pretty interesting results. They definitely found a number of cracks throughout the fleet. Yeah, and I'm just going to let people know what the SAIB stands for. Okay. It's a Special Airworthiness Information Bulletin. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm actually familiar with that from when I was an air coop owner. And we had to do this, uh, This it turned out to be an AD called the Swiss Cheese Wings AD, where you had to get inspection holes put inside the wing to take a look at the spar. The spar. So yep. um, in this case, yep. So according to the SAIB, the FAA and Piper found 115 of the 2,880 aircraft, there are reported crack indications. So out of that, 
25%, which I did the fig, the math on, I hope I'm right, but about 30 aircraft had hole damage, H-O-L-E, hole damage uh, or corrosion and not a crack. So what I think that means is that it's the, the rivet holes yeah. that were drilled on that spark. And so I'm just wondering, is that something that happened during the initial production of that aircraft or did corrosion have something to do with it and it and it somehow there was a little bit there was stress on the wing from so many takeoffs and landings that it elongated those those holes or just what yeah. but nonetheless 30 about 30 aircraft out of 115 that reported having those crack indications went back to the holes and not just you know corrosion or cracks in the infrastructure interesting okay yeah, so I encourage you to check that out, especially if you're a Piper owner or thinking about buying a Piper. Especially if you're thinking about buying a Piper. Yep, yeah, yep. Budget some time for that and some money for that. Yeah. And don't get too wrapped up with it emotionally. If you if you find some an aircraft with damage that looks like it might be very expensive to fix, I mean, I hate to say it, but you might need to move on. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Speaking of moving on, David, we want to bring on our guests for this week, Josh Flowers. If you're an aviation YouTube fan, I'm sure you know Josh, Aviation 101. It's a great, uh, great channel and really excited to talk to him. My name is Josh Flowers. I run a YouTube channel called Aviation 101. I'm a pilot flight instructor out of Central Texas. How'd you get started doing this? <sighs> kind of by accident on YouTube. I got, I got started really by accident. I produced a video that I thought nothing about. It was just, it was a video of my discovery flight. And I guess if I, if I back up a number of years, my dad is the one that got me into flying. When I was three, they sold their 172. My parents had a Cessna 172 for 17 years, all through the 80s and 90s. And then they, once they sold the airplane, uh, I had very vague memories of flying, just, you know, just little snippets here and there that I could remember. And then from what we had on camera, my dad's always been into filming everything for, for home movies and stuff like that. Is that his career? So his, his primary career is working for the state of Texas, Department of Agriculture. But my parents had a side business where they filmed live events, mainly weddings, is what they were doing. And you know, back in the, the 80s and 90s when they had the plane, they would film some of their trips and such with the plane on VHS cameras. And we kept archives of all that stuff, and my dad was very good about that. So my dad got me into flying, and both of my parents got me into the filmmaking side of it. Growing up, I was around them filming weddings and I would go to a lot of the rehearsals where they were kind of scouting out shots and stuff like that and every now and then I'd go with them that go with them to help and of course I was with them through the whole post-production side of things the editing and I saw how all that worked I just got into it and kind of growing up I, I don't remember a time that I didn't have a camera somewhere nearby that I was messing with and getting shots with and stuff was it your idea to film your discovery flight I think it was kind of a mutual decision to, to film the Discovery flight initially between my dad and I. If I 
didn't mention filming it, he would have just filmed it. <laughs> you know, so it's it going to happen either way. Were uh, you behind the camera and behind the uh, yoke at the same time, or did, no, what did no. you? So, so my my dad actually went with me. I had technically two discovery flights because I went up out of flight school at one point, uh, and very shortly thereafter, that flight school closed at Austin. And then we heard about a different flight school. So that first discovery flight was in an Archer, Piper Archer. My dad rode in the back for it. It's in Texas in December, and it was in the 80s, and we had air conditioning. So that I specifically remember that being a great part. He rode in the back of the plane. We filmed that. And then about six months later, that flight school went under. I think they went bankrupt and such. And uh, we went to a different flight school on the other side of the airport that had tons of 172s and a couple 152s. And that seemed like a better better option to learn to fly at. So my dad sat in the back seat for both of those. And Did you it. fall in love with flying or do you think it was a part in your blood and it just was a natural thing? I think it was just a natural thing because of it being there when I was born. <laughs> I mean, you know, my, my parents had the plane and it was just, I don't know, it was always this immersive thought of flying and I, I have this very vivid memory and it was always kind of uh, it was always brought back up every time I would look at our old home video footage on these VHS tapes it's like it was a you know a handheld camera that sits on your shoulder one of these big VHS camcorders and they would record in the plane and there were there was one specific shot of my dad it was dusk and there were no he wasn't using any headsets or anything this this was in 1989 or something like that and uh, I remember just hearing him picking up a clearance, hearing the controller over the, the loudspeaker, and it's kind of crackly and crappy quality. And I don't know why, but that's just what I always came back to. Until to this day, I can sit in a brand new airplane, doesn't matter what it is. When I hear an air traffic controller over one of those four inch cone speakers in the cockpit, it just, like, uh, it just reminds me of that excitement of just wanting to learn about it. And, get into this. As yeah, a your dad was a pilot. Was your mom also a pilot? She's not, uh, but my mom has been a, a, an avid supporter of both of us, and she's flown with him all over the place. Uh, for her work, they used to fly to conventions and stuff like that using the plane, and back then with, you know, two kids, and they would have the strollers in the back of the Skyhawk and everything, and they flew all over the place. So tell me what Aviation 101 is. If you have to give me your mission statement or just like your thought process of what you feel like it is. So. Aviation 101 is really, it's kind of changed meanings for me over the, over the years. Uh, at first it was just a, it was my creative outlet to post videos and, and give me an excuse to use a camera and produce something. Because uh, that's, that's as deep of a passion of mine as flying, every bit. So it was, a, it was an excuse for me to, to have my foot in video production and I learned about it. And I, I learned every step of the way, I never went to school for it or anything. As Aviation 101 kind of progressed, I learned how to fly, got my private, got my instrument, and then through my commercial. And up until that point, it was just kind of about just sharing my experiences. There was really no clearly defined purpose behind what I was posting. Of course, back then, you know, I, I saw a purpose of, oh, well, I'm sharing my flights. It's, that's what I'm doing. But as time went on, I can look back on that and say it's my purpose is much more clear to me now. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. But as time has progressed, I, I got my CFI, became a flight instructor, and that was really a pivotal point. I started to learn about the law of primacy, fundamentals of instructing, setting a good example, and what it means to be a role model in aviation. And 
I got my flight instructor because I, I did feel like I would, I would like teaching. I don't have an intention to go to the airlines, at least not right now. That's not, it's not in the books for me. And getting the flight instructor certificate was the next logical step. And once I got my flight instructor, I learned about this whole other side or this whole new perspective to look at general aviation from. And that was setting a good example. And I started to look at that in conjunction with social media and looking at what kind of stuff gets posted out there on social media and even some of the stuff that I've posted over the years that looking back on it, I'm like, wow, I'm, I hope not too many student pilots watched that because either I really did not explain that well or I totally made it look illegal or I, I, I made it look like that was an irresponsible decision. Uh, and in some cases it, it was, <laughs> and there was no avoiding that. So what it really turned into for me and what it is to me today is it's a creative outlet for me in terms of filmmaking. That's, that's a, a bonus, in my opinion. The main mission of Aviation 101, and, and I like to keep it this way, is to show off the beauty of general aviation while showing that you can have an absolute blast and a fun time with it and go to these gorgeous, beautiful places, see friends and family across the country, even in a Skyhawk. You don't need an extraordinary airplane for it, while also showing the safety side of it and the responsible side of it. And look, you can you can be a safe pilot that is a stickler for the rules and make sure you're doing everything by the book because those rules and recommendations are written in blood. They're there for a reason, but you don't have to get rid of the fun part. So you've been said you've been doing this for about 10 years. How many videos do you think you've produced in that 10 year period? I haven't looked at the number, but uh, on the, the creator dashboard on YouTube or something like that, it shows I've probably put out somewhere close to 500 but I'd have to go look. I'm not entirely sure. And do you own your own plane? So the plane is owned technically by my dad at this point. We treat it like a partnership. And we bought this thing as a way for me to build ours. And he stopped flying when they sold their Skyhawk and I think it was 1999. So when they sold that 172, he pretty much stopped flying. Life happened, you know, work was getting busy and they were building a new house. It just, it was kind of a, something that he was ready to, to put aside for now. So when they sold the airplane, he wasn't flying anymore. And when I got my private, he got inspired to get back into it and go get a flight review done and, uh, and start flying again. And at that point we said, well, now we're father and son, two pilots, and, and we don't have an airplane. So we both started kind of looking and, and keeping an eye out there. And, and he really wanted a, a 172 because that's what he's so familiar with. And it's just nostalgic for him. And, and for me too, that's what I got inspired with in the, all the home movies and stuff. So we found that airplane in 2013. Wasn't listed anywhere. I took a friend to lunch at a nearby airport, rented a 152 and landed, parked on the ramp. And there was a kind of a beat down looking Skyhawk with a for sale sign in the windshield. I looked at it and you know looked at the specs and the time and everything and the guy had his phone earlier just took a picture of it and said yeah we'll, we'll look at it later and uh you know we, we talked about it and there were a couple of other options that we were already looking at like cherokee that looked like a good deal at another airport and stuff like that but we just kind of kept coming back to the skyhawk because it was at the time it was a good deal and it was a project it was going to be a father-son project and we said well there's so much we can do with this it's going to need new paint it's going to need new engine you know all this kind of stuff so we, uh, we just got a hold of that airplane and we just started flying. And now, gosh, we've owned that airplane for nine years now. I have I turned around, got my CFII in that airplane, and I was able to take my dad through his instrument rating. How was that? As a flight instructor. 
great, an amazing learning experience. For, for him taking an FAA check ride for the first time in 20, 25 years, something like that, I'd have to actually have to, no, it's probably closer to 35 years, something like that. So for him taking an FAA check ride for the first time in a long time, that was one thing that was a kind of a learning curve for him. And also he, for me as an instructor, he was my first sign off. And I made sure to kind of hold out for that because I wanted him. And it, we, we trained on and off. He works full time, I work full time. And it was tricky getting our schedules to align. But once we did, we, we finished it up and it was a very cool full circle experience. And is Aviation 101 your full time job? And it when is. you when you describe to somebody what your job entails, what would you say? So my job really entails, if I'm gonna simplify it as best as I can, showing off all sorts of different facets of general aviation travel while also making it educational. Showing off the beauty of it while keeping, while showing off the educational side as well. And that's kind of how I get to continuously exercise my flight instructor certificate, aside from obviously flying with students here and there. Well, you said something earlier about mm -hmm. the fact that it all looks glamorous from this side, yeah. but then you go back. Tell me, tell me what you meant by that. So if you're doing stuff on social media, which I, I would consider is mostly my full-time job, I do a lot of film, I do some film work here and there, kind of on a contract basis that's outside of social media, it's separate. But when you're doing stuff for social media, which is the bulk of, of what I do for a living, it's my job to make it look fun and glamorous and let's be honest, flying is. It, it is, it's, it's, in a lot of ways, it's hard to make it look not. But we travel around, like for example, right now we're on this, and now we're going on a month and a half that we've been gone traveling. And we started with Oshkosh, and we went to Canada, up to New York, and then now we're, we're here, we're going to the Caribbean on the way you know, down the East Coast. We're spending this much time, probably at the end of it, about two months of filming for this series, for example that's gonna be a solid year, year of work, post-production. The glamorous flying part and going to the cool destinations is 10% of it. The other 90% is gonna be me sitting behind a computer with my headphones on, trying to stay alive with coffee <laughs> and, and just trying to tell the story, try to do, do this story of each flight, do it justice for one, and to deliver the message that I think is the most appropriate. So um, why do you think you're popular? It's a good question. Am I popular? Is that do we consider it? Do you it have that? a lot of followers? Over the years, it's it's come up to about 250,000 subscribers on YouTube. And in aviation, I think that's pretty middle of the road, and it's a very niche market. Why would the channel have become as popular as it has? It's a really tough question. I don't know. Too charming, I, boyish good looks. <laughs> I don't know about that. If there was one thing that I I had to force myself to attribute it to. I would say that it's, it's the educational twist, the educational nature that I put behind the videos, because I, I do think a lot of my followers, or, or a lot of my audience on YouTube, they are wanting to get into flying, or they're in the middle of their training, and they're just looking for like that, that one example of how to pick up flight following, you know, and they just want to hear me do it in a regular instance. Or some of them are, are people who have had their CFI for a long time, and they just, they're looking for some inspiration to just get their multi so they can get that faster airplane and start doing some more traveling, something like that. So I think it's the, the educational aspect, and I think in, in recent years, at least, it's the additional effort that I've put into it on the cinematic side. I've really started showing off the beauty as best as I can, while, while keeping it about flying, but show off the beauty of the places that we're going. Who do you follow? In aviation, honestly, 
I don't follow too many, like I don't watch really any other aviation YouTube videos unless they're, they're my friend. You know, I, I, I have friends kind of scattered all over the place that I do keep up with them on YouTube, but I find my inspiration, a lot of times I, I'll even go back and if I'm feeling kind of in a, in a creative rut, I will go back and watch one of my videos from a year and a half ago and remind myself what I was producing when I was feeling really inspired about that. Mm. And then that's, that's kind of where I get my inspiration to go, go forward with that. Somebody that I do follow pretty regularly is like, he's not even, he actually is a pilot, I found out after following him for a couple of years, I didn't even know it. But he makes overlanding videos in Australia. Mm. I'm very into camping, outdoorsy type stuff. I like to think our styles are very similar. He is very into the storytelling side and makes beautiful films, but he also just teaches about, he's an expert at what he does. And he just sits there and just casually talks like you're sitting around a campfire having a beer with him. And he talks about what he, what he likes to do in certain situations and equipment he likes to carry and such. And I, I like to, to kind of emulate that a little bit. At least when I'm in the plane, I, I talk as though a student pilot's sitting next to me. Or when I'm sitting here, you know, holding the camera out front, talking to the camera, I talk as though there is a student pilot standing right in front of me and I'm explaining to them what I'm about to do, why I'm about to do that, and why I think that's the best way that we should do it on this flight. All right, David, it's so great that we, we got to talk to Josh. One thing that, that always amazes me about aviation content is on YouTube is if you, if you really take the time to study it and look it over as, as we often have, the amount of time that it takes these guys to produce this stuff is just incredible. And, and I think, you know, just to throw it all out there for all of us, it's, it's actually quite a service. We were just talking to Swain Martin about this. He says, you know, it's a lot of time they spend shooting, editing, getting all this stuff ready to go. And so uh, really appreciate the effort they put in to do that. Yeah, while we work uh, weeks in or sometimes months in advance for the magazine, these folks that are dedicated instructors like Josh, they, they work months and years in advance sometimes to get that data out there and to get those tips out there. And, and Josh is a great uh, advocate for general aviation. And He's got a really nice 172. I mean, he's just a, a regular person. And, and, and bringing a lot of those tips to folks like ourselves, it really is a huge service. And our hats are off to Josh and everyone who's doing that and helping us out. Yeah, yeah. All right, hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I know you gotta get to work and I, I gotta you know get back to bed uh, on my vacation. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll see you next time. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk and wherever you get your podcasts or your YouTube videos. All right. We'll see you next time. See you. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>